This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hello there, and welcome to the Giving Thought podcast uh, with your hosts, me, Adam Pickering, and uh, my colleague, Rodri Davis. Hey, Rodri. Hiya. So today, uh, in a slightly noisy Giving Thought Towers, apologies if you can hear some background noise there, we've got builders in, um, we're going to be discussing um, bad money. So all the ways in which money might be tainted and how that might affect uh, charities. Um, so without further ado... Uh, in this, our 10th episode, 10, Rod, double wow, figures. Double, double figures. They said it couldn't be done. Yeah. And, you know, depending on how this uh, oh, no, so maybe recording should, goes, it maybe. might not be done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shall I take this one? Yeah. So just maybe a, a quick quote to, to get the scene set. Uh, and you've probably heard this before, Adam, but, you know, a great man once said, shot through the heart, you're to blame, you give philanthropy. <laughs> A bad name. That's not technically what he said, but that's basically what we're talking about. It's kind of where where are there donations that cause problems for charities? Caught because for some reason they either come with strings attached that sort of potentially compromise the charity's mission, or there is something about the the donor or the organisation themselves that cause problems. This, this is a, a topic we've chatted about a lot because it kind of it comes round with pretty sort of obvious frequency. Yes, yeah. there's always versions of the story. The most recent one um, is actually a kind of a new version of a slightly old story, which is about um, uh, basically a professor at Oxford University resigned in protest recently and got quite a lot of news um, because he objected to the fact that the university had accepted a very large uh, donation, uh, 75 million, from a, a guy called Leonard Blavatnik, who is a Ukrainian oligarch who is extraordinarily generous and has given lots of money to Oxford particularly to set up a school of government that has his name. Um, and when he did this a couple of years ago, it proved controversial uh, because people were critical of his ties to the Putin regime and his business practices and all this sort of thing. Um, but this time, the reason that the professor resigned in protest was because it became uh, known that Blavatnik had given some money to the the Donald Trump, uh, the campaign to elect Donald Trump in, in the US last year. Um, Actually, Blavatnik countered after this criticism came out that what he'd done was support the the inauguration, and actually he'd done the same for Barack Obama. So it wasn't quite as clear cut as all yeah. that. But but it basically raised you know this this question again: When is it that charities should say you know or other institutions should say no to donations on the grounds that the you know the damage potentially being caused by them doesn't make it worth it, even if it's a lot of money? Um, and I suppose you know. There's a couple of different angles here, and and one is basically that question of you know is it better to keep your own hands clean as an organisation and and not risk tainting yourself, or is it better to try and take money that you know might or might not be slightly questionable and do very obvious good with it? Yeah, it's just there's a sort of sliding scale of approaches to it, isn't there? Um, I guess uh, from the extreme at one end, you could say, look, our our job and our accountability is to our own beneficiaries and to our own charitable mission. Therefore, any money that furthers us in that mission is good money as far as we're concerned. And in fact, you know, 
were helping to turn what had been bad money into something good. Uh, move further along that scale and you get a kind of uh, a middle approach where you might say, well, okay, um, there are some things that we, we, there are some sources that we just won't accept um, probably because they are directly um, affecting um, our mission. So by legitimizing, say, for example, if you're a, a, an organization that's trying to uh, cure cancer, and you accept donations from the um, the cigarette industry, that's um, that's going to call into question the kind of overall impact that you're having because on the one hand, you're legitimizing the very thing that you're trying to address. Um, and I guess all the way on the other end, you have uh, organizations that might take a moral view of uh, the sources of income that's not even limited to their own cause, their own purpose. So, you know, that might be, uh, say, for example, uh, you know, an, an animal char- charity that doesn't want to take donations from a weapons manufacturer. Um, I guess it's up for all charities, isn't it? And But the question that hangs over this is that difference between the immediate impact that you're accountable for, what you deliver as an organisation, and the, the kind of overall impact of your contribution the sort of net effect that it might have um within the economy yeah i think it's definitely a question there you know on that sort of sliding scale that, that you um that you put, put that uh, put it on there about the, the the really interesting gray area which is which is particularly that one where you're talking about organizations where they're accepting a donation from somebody who is controversial for one reason or another but there isn't an absolutely obvious clash with their charitable mission. Yeah. So, you know, yes, you're absolutely right. Health charities taking money from the tobacco industry, it's a pretty clear one. They, ha- they have to say no, or at the very least, they're entitled to say no. Yeah. But what if you're, you know, an opera house or an arts charity and, and a big tobacco company comes around and says they want to give you loads of money? Well, you know, you as an individual might object to tobacco, but even if you're a trustee of that charity, it's not very clear that it is your job to impose your own views of the world yeah. on the, the question of whether or not your charity should take that money. Because, you know, actually tobacco at this point in time is still legal. So that company's not committing a crime. And on what grounds are you making the decision about saying no to that donation? Are you actually fulfilling your duties as a trustee by not accepting money that could go towards your cause? Yeah. And, and what makes this even more interesting is. Um, obviously, most people would expect uh, charities to be uh, probably more ethically accountable than most other institutions. But, you know, there are private companies, particularly companies that are still in private hands, um, who will take ethical decisions that have nothing really to do with the, the kind of goals of their company Um well, they'll take ethical decisions because that's just what they think is the right thing to do. And no one will question those decisions because people will think that, you know, that privately owned company has a right to make the decision. Whereas people may see a charity rejecting money as a kind of political act. And that may raise uh, raise questions for the trustees, for the leadership of the organisation, and ultimately it may cause controversy. Mm. Well, absolutely. In the case of Blavatnik, you know, if your grounds as Oxford University or any other charity, and actually the the Victoria and Albert Museum got dragged into this because they've taken very large donations yeah. from him in the past as well. 
if your grounds for refusing that that money is saying actually no you know you've supported donald trump in some way or another and we disagree with his politics well that is an overtly political statement on the part of the charity and one that might actually get them in quite a lot of hot water yeah exactly look so we've got a lot to get through in this episode so i'm going to move us on from uh, from potentially bad money to money which is absolutely definitely bad in the next section where we're going to talk about money laundering and uh, terrorist financing Okay, so we're back. Yeah. And in this section, uh, as Adam said before the break, we're going to be talking about money laundering, uh, proceeds of crime and and uh, money uh, financing uh, terrorism and kind of what questions that raises and challenges it poses for charities. Yep. So uh, the first thing that I should flag up is this is not going to be an expansive discussion of the technicalities of uh, money laundering and t- uh, counter-terrorist financing. Neither is it going to be a description of uh, the regulatory environment, and in particular, oh. the Financial Action uh, Task Force. Uh, there's a lot been written about this, including by us, um, so I encourage you to go and look for that. What I think we need to cover is these cases where... So, okay, so money laundering and um, terrorist financing, the, the, the kind of use of, of dark money uh, to... Uh, to fund explicitly illegal activities. Um, clearly, any association that charities have with that is pretty toxic, well, and also illegal. Um, the the regulatory environment has tightened up dramatically uh, over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, particularly you know since uh, 9-11, uh, as uh, governments come together and try to kind of uh, turn the screw on um, despotic... Uh, and violent regimes are on um, terrorist groups. Um, and so this seems kind of black and white. Um, you know, anything that um, makes uh, donors and charities safer from getting caught up with um, with dodgy money is good for everyone concerned and good for trust in the sector uh, and good for beneficiaries as well. Um, also, it would seem. But even here, there are some grey areas, I guess. Um, there are no grey areas in terms of, you know, charities uh, accepting the, that explicit handling of dirty money. But there are some instances where operating in dangerous places in the world essentially mean that you have to take on a certain element of risk. So the example that I would give is, you know, imagine a, uh, a big uh, humanitarian organisation working in... Um, in say Syria or Yemen, um, and they're extremely well governed. Um, but in order to uh, to pass uh, a roadblock that they didn't know existed uh, with all of their aid trucks, they're asked to pay a very very small fee um, to cross that um, security gate. Even but even that tiny fee, technically, may be supporting. The, the regime or maybe supporting a terrorist group. So where's the threshold of what amount of terrorist financing you will accept? Is it £1,000? Is it £100? Is it £1? Is it one pence? Uh, and actually, regulators are pretty quiet on that. So it's a, I think it's a, like an extreme example of uh, talking about bad money and charities and how that affects kind of 
our perceptions and our trust in them. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's as you say, you know, it's really important to be clear that obviously we're not saying that charities should be absolved of responsibility for making sure that money doesn't end up in the hands of terrorists. God I mean, no. Charities are, you know, very well aware of the dangers of this, particularly those that, that operate in difficult parts of the world. But as you say, you know, the reality of operating in those parts of the world is you know, you can manage risk, but you can't ever totally eradicate it. And so really, you know, it's kind of if you've got the best due diligence in the world and the best kind of risk control systems, even then, can you can you still manage to to operate and do the kind of very important and necessary work to help people in those parts of the world yeah. whilst, you know, without some element of, of that risk remaining? And I think, you know, probably not. So what do you, you know, what do you do about it? I mean, in the off chance that anyone listening to this may face this kind of situation, the first thing we have to say is, you need to talk to your regulators and you need to talk yeah. to your banks and they need to know what you're doing and they will be a lot more comfortable with any kind of risk that you're exposed to if you explain what you're doing to mitigate it and if there's kind of fair warning. Um, that's certainly true in the in the UK. Our charity commission is very open to those uh, those discussions and it will it will look a lot better if they know it's coming. Um, yeah. is, is the first thing to say. Um, but yeah, I... Over and above this, the the other thing to consider is uh, the effect that it's having for charities. The um, the the reduction in provision of financial services it gets harder and harder for many organisations operating in risky areas to uh, retain financial services from their banks. And there's a perception often that that's because banks are just kind of uh, not interested in that business or they're prejudiced in some way. And actually, you know, banks are not in the business of prejudice, they're in the business of usually of making money. Um, and so in most instances, um, and actually to be fair, most of them do feel some duty to provide services to charities. It's not massively profitable, but it's uh, it's a good good thing for them to be seen to be doing. The problem is there is no they have no protection from, from risk and judging by uh, recent court cases, particularly in the US, um, there are there don't seem to be many circumstances where you can say that any risk is acceptable in terrorist financing and that may may sound correct and you know probably is in many ways we don't want to accept any level of risk but that's easier to say than it is to do when you look at the consequences that might have because yeah. clearly organizations working in these areas are helping in a very major way to address some of the causes of terrorism um, so you wouldn't want to lose that work. And at the same time, people are very generous and they want to help. And if they're not able to help legitimate organisations, they often end up, you know, bunging money into the back of ambulances and trying to drive across borders. And, you know, I would argue that's yeah. much more of a risk. Well, and I think from a from a policy perspective, if you're a government and your, your aim is to clamp down on the kind of likelihood of domestic terrorism or money to go into finance terrorism overseas, there has to be a bit of that joined up thinking. Because if you think that, all you need to do is make regulation on, you know, banking and all these sorts of things so difficult that yeah. charities operating in those parts of the world can't do it any longer. That's not going to solve the problem. In fact, it's likely to make it worse, precisely as you say, Adam, because the people giving to those organizations aren't suddenly going to go, oh, well, I'll give to, you know, Cancer Research UK or a donkey sanctuary instead. They're going to say, fine, I'll find other ways of getting money into Syria or Yemen that are probably going to go outside of formal, regulated, legal structures. And that is going to be m much more risky in terms of the money and ending up in the wrong hands. Exactly. 
It's a really difficult question. It's one that, uh, as you know, in line with our tradition on the Giving Thought podcast, we don't intend to give any definite answers to. But uh, <laughs> but it's no, a, absolutely not on this one. It's an yeah. issue that raises that you know. It's really interesting to talk about, even even if it's quite difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and important. I think really important. Mm. So now we're going to be talking about essentially the ethics of what charities do with their own money. Um, so, Rod, kick us off. Yeah, I suppose that, that's right, Adam. I mean, what we're talking about really is kind of an ethical investment by charities and charitable foundations. I mean, you know, the thing to, to start, the starting point is to say all these organizations, charities and foundations are businesses in some sense, organizations mm. that have money and assets and they need to do something with them. So at the very least, they need to put them in a bank account, but actually with a lot of them, they have endowed assets. So those need to be invested somewhere. So immediately you have all the sort of questions of, okay, what is actually being done with that money? Now, we all kind of should be aware, I would imagine, that there's been an increasing focus on kind of ethical investment of one sort or another, either kind of screening by taking out bad things like arms manufacturing and tobacco, or more recently kind of positive inclusion, so focusing on things that have social and environmental value. And it seems like a bit of a no-brainer that, Surely, you know, that's what all charities are doing because they're all trying to do good in the world. So if they're making investments, they must be doing it ethically, right? Well, the reality is no, not really. And it's not just through kind of lack of will. There are some actual practical barriers to it. So I think the thing to kind of kick this off as a, as a question that might seem slightly counterintuitive is actually if you're a trustee of a charity and it comes to making investment decisions, what is your job? Is it to maximize the return on those investments you know kind of regardless of any other concerns so that you have the maximum amount of money to put towards your charitable cause or do you need to take into account other considerations about how that money is used so do you actually as a trustee have the right to say for instance that you'll accept a slightly lower rate of return on your investments because they are ethical if that means you have less money to spend on your charitable cause and you know there there is uh, actually some kind of legal precedent that it is okay to do that now, but there's a lot yeah. of confusion amongst trustees about you know what what they should be doing. So here in, here in the UK, we have guidance on this stuff. And even with the guide, yeah. guidance, there's still a lot of kind of misunderstanding and misinformation. I'd be fascinated to know what exists in other countries in terms of guidance, because I suspect it's different in different jurisdictions. I mean, it, it gets it gets clearer if the question you're asking is, if if I invest, if some of my investments go towards things which, as well as providing us with a potential return, also directly uh, involve a, you know, create a positive outcome that could be considered uh, within our mission, then that's pretty clear. You know, if you're if you're using your um, if you're using your investments again, say you're a cancer charity and you're using your investments to invest in. Uh, private companies who are searching for cures for cancer, um, then clearly you're using your investments in a way which is supporting your charitable mission. So that that's kind of easier. But I guess yeah, it's 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 more of a question if you're investing in something completely unrelated, but that you consider ethical. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that thing about kind of you know mission related investment, which usually is talking about you know investing in actively kind of socially good 
um, uh, project that probably, even if they've got a commercial element, will definitely be below a market rate of return. Yeah, is a sort of special thing in itself, and it you know sometimes called kind of program related investment. The, the interesting stuff, as you say, is the question of where the the social good being done or the potentially the social ill being done by the investment has nothing to do with the charity's core mm-hmm. mission. What's the situation? And it's it's a bit like what we were talking about with donations earlier. I mean, actually, the kind of the three rules of thumb established here in the UK are basically if as a trustee you can show that actually there's no financial loss by making that that investment, it's kind of fine. And actually, a lot of ethical investment now is basically at a market rate or even market beating rate of return. So there's not really a question. Yeah. If you if you can show that it actively compromises your charity's mission, so you know health charities obviously can can screen out tobacco and because you know they, it would be bad for them to be supporting that industry. The the one that is that is more difficult is a slightly more nebulous thing about if you can show that there is a realistic reputational risk to your charity. And that's where you have the whole question about kind of individual trustee judgments about, you know, whether some particular investment is good or bad and whether they can demonstrate that it would be bad for them to be seen to be investing. And that's where all the stuff that we've seen about kind of fossil fuel investment comes in, I suppose. Well, it has to be said, that is getting a lot easier because Mm. a number of uh, charities have been hung out to dry in the press over the last few years for their investment policies. So that defense of we need to protect our reputation, this would be a risk, is is going to get in, incrementally easier as uh, media and the public yeah. interest in, increases in where charities put their money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if you can say, look, it definitely will damage our relationship with our supporters to continue to invest in fossil fuels because they've told us it will, that that is not yeah. a very difficult decision to make anymore. And as you say, I think that will get easier and easier. Well, all of this, you know, all of this relies on uh, finance managers and trustees in charities that are incredibly uh, financially literate um, and 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 interested. Actually, to be fair, um, and it, it requires a sort of cross pollination from policy teams into finance teams where. Uh, you know, where there isn't a kind of brick wall built up between what the charity thinks and does and how it gets its money. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's right. And I think particularly because, you know, finance teams tend to think in pure in terms of purely financial risk, whereas actually if what you're saying is that any perceived financial risk is outweighed by a much more real reputational risk, that's not something they'll necessarily be taking into account. Whereas kind of policy teams and external affairs teams and and leadership teams should probably be balancing those sorts of things out. Exactly. So look, I think that's probably enough for today, isn't it, Rod? I would say so, Adam. Yeah. Um, And as ever, yeah, we'll be putting some links to blogs and things we've written about all of these topics uh, in the show notes for this episode. Um, you know, if you've enjoyed it, that's brilliant. Uh, if you've got ideas about things we could be talking about or ways we could make it better, drop us a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Check out our website at www.givingthought.org. And other than that, we'll see you next time. See you later. <laughs>